0: My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and we're glad that you've joined us for worship uh, this morning. Last week, we started a new sermon series looking at the book of Joshua. Right, the story of Joshua is the story of God fulfilling his promise of a particular land for his people in the nation of Israel. After being slaves in Egypt, they were freed by God uh, through many marvelous wonders, and then they wander through the wilderness for 40 years. And in this book, God finally brings them into the promised land. Last week, in chapter 1, we met Joshua, the man that God chose to lead his people after Moses had died. And I wonder what great hero, what strong, upstanding man of God will meet this week? Let's find out. Joshua chapter 2, we're going to be reading several sections of verses, but we're going to begin with verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them and she said true the men came to me but i did not know where they were from and when the gate was about to be closed at dark the men went out i do not know where the men went pursue them quickly for you will overtake them but she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof before the men laid down she came upon up to them on the roof and said to the men i know that the lord has given you the land and that the fear of, the, of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the kings, the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, who you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted And there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death— If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us this morning. Oh God, as we gather together, we hear from your scripture, a story that seems to have nothing to do with us. Seen, it sounds nice, it's a good story, but we ask that this morning you would send your spirit into our hearts to bring these words to life. Help us to hear in the story of Rahab your kindness, your faithfulness your mercy, and help us to believe that that is true for us as well. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I spent the summer of 2006 as a missionary intern working with a team in the slums of Nairobi, Kenya. Three months serving food, praying, playing with kids, teaching, and preaching. And in the end of that summer, the pastor who we were working with said, hey, we're having this awesome youth camp over New Year's, and we'd love for you to come back. And when I got home from that summer trip, I immediately booked my ticket and was surprised to find out that no one else from my team was going to go. So I spent the fall semester in college getting really excited to go back to see all the friends that I had made in Kenya, to celebrate and to worship with these children that I had spent the summer with, and honestly getting kind of excited that I was going to be the only American there celebrating New Year's with my new friends in their home, with their traditions, just me and them. Well, I landed on December 28th in Nairobi, Kenya at midnight, and the pastor was there waiting for me in the airport. We grabbed my bags, we walked out to his van to find that it was full of Americans. I was a little bit disappointed, I can be honest with you. See, he had invited a team from a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they were made up of YMCA youth camp directors. They didn't know that I was coming. I didn't know that they were coming. Uh, They were kind of weirded out by me, and I was a little disappointed by them. As we started driving, I was trying to reconnect with the pastor I had spent the summer with, and they began to ask me all these questions. You know, who are you? Where are you from? Where do you go to school? What did you uh, do this summer? And then from the back seat, there were four people crammed into this back seat. It was very dark. There's not a lot of streetlights. And so I couldn't see who it was, but this voice came. And she asked, how does it feel to be back? And that was the first thing that Nicole ever said to me. That was her in the back. That's what I mean by that. That's my way. We ended up getting married. Um, Sometimes things happen in an unexpected way at an unexpected time. And often those unexpected things are the best possible things. But that doesn't stop us from living our lives as if, you know, we understand how things are going to go, right? We get it, generally speaking. We organize our lives in such a way that we know how our efforts and our actions will result. We can control cause and effect, and it leads us to believe we generally have a hold on how things are going to go. It even leads us to believe we understand how God is going to work and in whom and through whom God is going to work. Right? We generally think if we do all of these things, God is going to bless us in some certain way. You might not overtly think that, but you sure are disappointed when he doesn't, aren't you? Perhaps you've thought something like, well, God would never do that, at least not for me. Or that person, they're definitely not a Christian. They're never going to be a Christian. Right? We think we understand God. But this account of Rahab shows us that, thankfully, God doesn't operate the way we think he will. God is far more gracious, far more merciful than we'd ever expect. His love reaches further than we know to people we would never assume. Right? God welcomes unexpected people through unexpected means. Two points for us this morning, starting with God welcomes unexpected people. Now, you don't need a degree in ancient Hebrew literature to know that we should not expect Rahab to be the second character of prominence we meet in the sixth book of the Bible, right? To start things off, A, she's a woman. In this time period, that's not a way to be recognized, not a reason to be recorded. Two, She's a Canaanite. She's not part of the Jewish people. She's not part of God's people at all. That's not a great way to be recorded by the Jewish histories. And D, she's a prostitute. That's a problem. A Canaanite woman of questionable profession. When we first see her name and epitaph here in chapter 2, we almost expect her to be Joshua's foil, right? His opposite. He is the upstanding, faithful leader of God's choosing, and here's Rahab, the vile, sinful temptress. We think that there are going to be foils in this story, and all we have to do is listen to the way she speaks to know that she's not. Here is a woman who knows not just about God, but she knows the name of the Lord, his covenant, special, relational name that he revealed only to Moses and only through Moses to his people. That's why in the bulletin and in your Bibles, the word Lord is in all caps. She knows his name, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God who is connected to his people. And by using that name, She is identifying herself with God's people. She's saying, I belong to him. But not only that, she has confidence in the promises that God has made to his people. In verse nine, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, right? We looked at those promises last week. She wasn't around for those promises, but she knows about them and she has confidence in them. I know. And even more than that, as she lists some of the historical acts of God's salvation. We know that he parted the Red Sea. We know that he delivered these two kings, Sion and Og, into your hands. She then proclaims, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's a simple way of saying God is God of everything. Here, this woman of questionable profession makes a credible profession of faith. She's the last person that you'd expect to hear it from, and yet she is the first person in this book and in the early history of Israel's nationhood to make such a powerful profession of faith. Now, your skepticism might be kicking in. You might be thinking, well, she knew that Jericho was going to get destroyed, right? She just wanted to save her skin. She didn't, she didn't want to be killed like everybody else, and so she says these things in order to make sure that the spies are like, oh yeah, we can trust her. But that's not how this passage is interpreted by the rest of Scripture, right? Rahab is mentioned by name in the New Testament more than Joshua is. And mostly it's because of her faith, right? What we see is that God welcomes even people like Rahab, unexpected people. That's true throughout history. It's true that we see God welcoming the most unexpected people. All we have to do is look at who Jesus hung out with. The outcast, the wounded, the dirty, the unclean. Those whom the rest of society would say, anybody but them. And think about who begins to lead the church after Jesus' death and resurrection. Right? The Apostle Paul shows up and becomes the greatest missionary ever, But a few chapters before, he was the one who was trying to destroy the church of Jesus. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, whom we heard from his letter, spent his earthly life, though he was the half-brother of Jesus, denying and rejecting Jesus in his earthly ministry, like the rest of his family. And yet, Jesus welcomes him in. The rest of history is filled with people you might not expect The pagan emperor of Rome, Constantine, has a vision of Jesus in a dream, and because of that, he is converted, and the rest of the Roman Empire is introduced to Christianity. Emperors and beggars, the vile and the pious. No one is too far off. No one is too far gone, which means your brother, your sister, your parents, your children, your neighbor who you might be tempted to think, well, certainly never them. They'll never believe. They'll never come to faith. Rahab stands as a reminder. God welcomes unexpected people from all different countries and backgrounds and histories, from the far reaches of the world. I say this often, and uh, I'm pretty sure I didn't make it up. I'm pretty sure I heard it somewhere, but I don't remember where I heard it. I often say, when you get to heaven, you're going to be surprised by some of the people. He got in, or she got in, and there's going to be a lot of people surprised to see you. Maybe it's not your profession that is questionable, but your heart, your words, your actions, your intentions are. You are the most unexpected person that God welcomes into his family. And he does. Not me, you might be thinking. Now, I, I grew up in the church. I've been a Christian a long time. I haven't done any of the really, really bad sins. right? I have known almost every day of my life that Jesus loves me. I, I should expect it. And I believe you when you say that but I also know my own heart. I know my judgmentalism and my jealousy. I know my anger and my sinfulness. I know my own lack of belief. And a lot of times, if I'm very honest with myself, and I hope you can be honest with yourself, I don't want to be around me. So then how could a perfect and holy God want me to be part of his family? God welcomes you for the first time or for the thousandth time. Even though it may seem unexpected, God welcomes you into his family. But how can you know that you are welcome? How can you feel welcome into God's family? Rahab lays out that exact answer. Proclaim the historical acts of God on your behalf think about what he has done for you in your life. And when you do, what you begin to see is that God welcomes unexpected people by unexpected means, right? Our second point, God welcomes unexpected people through unexpected means, right? This uh, account of Rahab isn't just a, a profile on her, But it's actually a story that advances Israel's movement into the promised land. It's through the characters of this story that God gives his people strength enough to go into the land and take it out. But it's not the people you'd expect, right? The story starts out with these spies. They're being sent to gather military intelligence on this enemy-occupied territory. They're terrible spies. They're found out immediately. They go into Jericho, and the king is alerted okay. The only reason they escape with their lives at all is because Rahab hides them and risks her own life to protect them. And when they finally get back to Joshua, though I didn't include it in the section that we read, what they say to him is uh, that the people are really afraid, so we know God is giving us the land. That's not military intelligence. They are terrible spies. It's through Rahab that the people of God are delivered. It's through Rahab that they are encouraged. It's through her proclamation that great fear has fallen upon all of us and all the people melt away in fear. Those words that she speaks give the people strength and courage that God is someone that they can trust and listen to. In fact, these are the exact words spoken by Moses in Exodus 15 after the people cross the Red Sea when God parts it and protects them from Pharaoh. God says the people of Canaan will melt away in fear. And here Rahab says he was right. We're afraid. So those words are spoken to Joshua, and it gives the people courage, not just to come and take the land and and win the victory, but to see that they can hold fast to the promises of God. It's through Rahab that the people are saved and welcomed into the land. But not only is she a person with a questionable profession, she's a person Israel should have avoided. You see, in Numbers 25, which is a book that comes before Joshua, written while the people are wandering in the wilderness, the people of Israel are told about these women of Moab from a different culture but with similar professions. The people of Israel start to chase after these women of Moab. And they end up being yoked to the the women. They get married and they marry into the culture and they end up worshiping all of the Moabite idols. And so Numbers 25, in 1 through 5, is written to warn the Israelites stay away from women like that. Women like Rahab will lead you down a road that ends in death. And yet. God uses Rahab to lead all of Israel to life, to welcome them into the land he promised them. Now, what if I told you that it's also through Rahab that you and I are welcomed by God? That sounds a little crazy, but not to spoil the ending of the story, when Israel comes in and takes over Jericho, they see this scarlet cord, and they remember the promise the spies made and Rahab and her father's house is spared. Her and her family are are welcomed into the nation of Israel. They become part of God's people, and she marries a man with a rather unfortunate name, Salmon, or Salmon, you know. Uh, You might not think it's unfortunate, but with my name, you know, game recognized game. I understand. We know how this goes. Um, Rahab and Salmon have a son named Boaz, Boaz marries a Moabite widow named Ruth. They have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse is the father of King David. The history of this family, the genealogy of this family is recorded in the first chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. Specifically, Rahab's name is mentioned because she is the great, 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 great fill-in-the-great-blanks grandmother of Jesus. From the lineage Of this Canaanite prostitute comes the Savior of the world. And just as the people of Israel were welcomed through unexpected means, when we look at the life of Jesus, when we look at his death and his resurrection, we see that all of us are saved in the most unexpected way, the cross. Think about it. To believe that the creator of the universe, all powerful, perfect in every way, wanted you to be with him, but knew because of your sin that you could never be together. But wanted you to be with him so badly that he submitted himself to humiliation, being abandoned, tortured, and strung up on a cross. That sounds foolish much less unexpected, right? Movements and religions are successful because their leader is successful. Dying on a cross is not success in the eyes of the world. It's failure. It's weakness. And yet, when you come to Jesus, when you see that the cross of Jesus was for you, You are welcomed into the family of God as his children. Weakness becomes strength. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And he, In writing, he, he says there was this uh, physical ailment that he had, something that he was embarrassed by because everybody could see it and knew it and understood how much of a failure he was. And he said, I prayed three times that God would take this away from me, and he chose not to take it from me, which is okay because it helps me realize your grace is sufficient for me. Your power is made perfect in my weakness, so I will boast all the more in my weakness. We believe that Jesus purposefully became weak for us, and yet so often all I try to do is portray that I am strong. The first sermon that I ever preached, I was an intern in seminary. I was given the opportunity to preach at the church that we were attending, and I spent 25 hours easy writing this great sermon super theologically astute, getting all these cross-references in, a few little jokes here, making sure my points were alliterative there. I got up and I preached, and I thought it went okay. Didn't get a lot of feedback on it. I used this illustration, though, about having headaches every day. day. I had cancer when I was a kid, and a side effect of the treatment that I had was having these headaches. I used it as a passing illustration, not even the most prominent illustration. And uh, a couple weeks after I had preached in our greeting time at the church, the person in front of me, a guy named Alan, turned around and was like, oh, hey, you gave the sermon a couple weeks ago. I would love to talk to you about it. And I was like, yeah, you would. (laughs) Love to talk with you about it. Um, And I asked, as I do now when someone uh, comments on my sermon, what did you like about it? What could I, what do you want to talk about? And he said... You know, for the past couple of months, I've had these chronic headaches every day. And even though I've shared it with some people, just nobody understands. But when I heard you say that, you also struck. I knew we, I could talk to you about it. I want... To be known for my knowledge right 12 years after preaching that sermon i still want people to know jesus because of what i've said my insight my explanation the things that i do correctly my rightness but time and time again people see jesus in my weakness when i'm vulnerable and honest in the things that i can't control in my failures In my pain, in my confession. That's the most frequent place that Jesus shows up. Most of us curate the us that everyone sees, right? Don't you do that? You want to make sure that people see someone who's good, strong, competent, just human enough. We don't want anybody to see the full picture the us when we fail the times when we're dysregulated, the the things that aren't nice and clean. But when we gather together, we feel it. When we search Scripture, we see it, that God uses these unexpected and often uncomfortable things to welcome people, us included, into his family. And so my encouragement to you is to not hide it. Don't cover it up. But lean into that weakness. Be real. Be honest with others. When you hear someone telling you that you've messed up, that you've sinned, that you've hurt them, try not defending yourself for a change. Believe them and repent. Say you're sorry and believe that because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, even after you've been exposed as a terrible sinner, still welcome in God's family because you are in Jesus, right? And I know, I know that that stuff just feels like death, but often, unexpectedly, what feels like and looks like death actually in Jesus leads to life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for your willingness to pursue us, your love for us. Even though we turn our backs on you, we run away, we deny you, we choose to look to and worship other things, you draw us back. And when we come broken and sinful, you welcome us as your children because of the blood of Jesus. God, I ask that you would stir our hearts to return to you in this moment, this day, this week. Draw us home and remind us that the only reason it is our home is because of the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.